Good morning, Missio. Uh, the reading today is from Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Amen. You may be seated. Just going to grab some props today. I'm going to do an improv show later. <laughs> I'm going to leave them there. They'll be relevant at some point, potentially. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for the gathering that we have this morning. A chance to hear from our community, to talk about your presence with children, to talk about worship, to hear the text and to gather at the table and to be together. It's just, it just feels like a gift. God, today would we receive that gift? Would we know it as a gift of love and of generosity and of abundance that you extend to us? And as that gift is extended to us, Lord, would it shape us into a people of you who are free to leave this place and extend that gift to those around us? God, are you with us? We know you are. Help us pay attention. Help us hear you. Help us respond. In your name we pray. 
Amen. Amen. Well, welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny Morris, and if we haven't met, I am one of the pastors on staff here at Missio. And today, we are beginning a new series entitled All of It Gift, exploring the letter to the Galatian church that Paul writes. And Galatians is maybe Paul's first or one of his earliest letters that he writes to a young church in the ancient world. It comes to a community that finds itself in what is modern Turkey. And over the next couple of weeks, we will explore what is the contention, what is the controversy, what are the different issues that are at play in the book of Galatians. But if we were to summarize, try to get down to the most basic issue that's at play, the reason that Paul is writing this letter, it is that there is no consensus on what the gospel is in this small church. The good news story This idea that is supposed to center Christians that has been preached all throughout the world has become contested in this church in Turkey. And there's good reason for that, or there's at least complicated social reasons for it to be contested. When the gospel began to get preached in the ancient world, something very unimaginable happened. People believed it. And people began to believe it in kind of rapid numbers. And Mainly people began to believe it who were non-Jewish, not the original recipients of this story. And as non-Jews, Gentiles, people in Turkey, people in Asia begin to believe the gospel and respond to it, it leads to a bunch of very complicated questions for early Christians to wrestle with. What does it mean for people to be Christian when this story was given first and foremost to a Jewish community? who had Torah as their legacy, who had Israel as their history, who had the Old Testament prophets as their ancestors, who shaped their understanding and their story. And they have to begin to wrestle through, what does it mean to have this new group of people become believers? And that question does not get wrestled with smoothly. It causes massive contention in the early church. Whole councils have to gather together. Arguments are waged. Lots of letters are written, and in this little tiny community in Turkey of Galatians, sects begin to form. Divisions and groups begin to form in this little church that divide along racial and religious lines because they don't have a consensus about what it means to be a part of this community anymore. A group of Jewish leaders come into the church and say, you need to adopt all of the ways of Torah in order to be a part of the Christian community. Maybe Jesus is the entrance into Christian community, but if you want to stay here, you need to get circumcised. You need to follow Torah. You need to eat kosher. And the crazy thing is that some Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, they do, which is crazy. If you told me that to be a part of your religion, I would need to get circumcised, I'd be like, I'm going to go home now. (laughs) Let's just think this one over for a while. People do it, though. They commit to this kosher way of living, this Judaizing way of living, as Paul will say it, to be a part of the Christian community. But another group does not. And they begin to divide along racial and religious barriers. And in Galatians chapter 2, we'll see a confrontation between apostles over racially and religiously segregating the church into two different tables, two different places of meals. Now, Paul hears word of this contention and of this controversy, and in a very strong words, he tells us what the issue is. We read it just a second ago, or we read it to us. In Galatians 1, verse 6 through 7, Paul says this, naming what he believes the issue in Galatians is. He says, I am amazed 
that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ to follow another gospel. It's not really another gospel, but certain people are confusing you and they want to change the gospel of Christ. He goes on to say that those who preach a different gospel should be accursed. And Bible scholar N.T. Wright says that that word accursed, it doesn't mean so much to like curse someone or to cuss someone out. It means to name like a public health crisis. So you'd be like, something is wrong here. There is some kind of public health emergency in this church, and I need to name that and identify it because the gospel has been lost. The central message of our community has been forgotten, and our community is in public health crisis. We're leaving away from the gospel and becoming defined by something other. So Paul writes this letter to address this church and to wrestle with what the gospel is and to help them understand it, and to understand what the gospel does in the life of a Christian community. What does it mean to believe the gospel, and then what should it look like in a Christian community? How does it get played out? How does it shape us? How does it empower us? What does it look like in a community if it doesn't look like these other things he's criticizing? Now, throughout this series, we'll look at things that are strange. We'll talk about circumcision. We'll talk about kosher. We'll talk about all of these things that maybe don't have a lot of, like, modern reference. But underneath these, like, very specific cultural expressions of the debate, I think in Galatians, we will find an experience that is very familiar to us. Because in Galatians, the question is, what is the gospel? And you have different groups fragmenting and fracturing along their understandings of the gospel. And I think that all of us at some level have probably had an experience similar to the one playing out in Galatians. There's a recent uh, research study done at the University of Yale on the Christian faith expression of mostly young Christians. And the coin, the phrase that they coined to describe how Christians are experiencing their faith today is this phrase, fragmented spirituality. And I feel like that phrase is such a good way of describing both what's happening in Galatians and what I experience just personally all the time. Fragmented spirituality speaks to the reality that you will read your Bible, or you will attend church, or you will listen to sermons, or you'll engage your faith in ways that feel meaningful, and then you will look out beyond you and be like, what? What do you Christians believe? What, what is happening in the name of my faith? Like, what, what are we doing? Something feels fragmented and fractured. Or it's that same experience that you have if you're having a conversation with somebody that you thought you agreed with, and then you're like opening the Bible and you're reading it together, and you're like, we're reading the same thing? We believe the same thing about Jesus? It feels so different. How did we get to this place that feels so different? I feel fragmented and fractured. This is not what I recognize in terms of my faith. This is not how... I understand it. How did we get to these very different places? I think if you've had this experience, you know that it is uh, one, deeply frustrating and painful, but can also just be really confusing. If you've ever had somebody that you love and you have this like contention and this conversation over and they leave the church that you love or they stop being friends with you because you don't understand the gospel the same way. Or in the book of Galatians, Paul is 
repeatedly accused of not preaching the gospel, which I imagine would feel very strange and confusing and painful to be told by a community that you love that you have not preached the gospel. So what Paul is wrestling through throughout this book is how did we get there? And though the situation is different in Galatians than it is in our own world today, I think the question and the experience is so similar. There is a fracturing and a fragmentation around our understanding of the gospel. There's a fragmentation around our shared belief systems, and that is difficult and confusing. And so to help us find some grounding and some direction, both the same way in the book of Galatians and today, we're going to look at what is the gospel. What is this story that is supposed to unite us and hold us together? What does it offer us? What does it say to us? And I think in the same way that it does for the Galatians, it could lead us through this a bit. So in light of that, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a very simple phrase from chapter 1 and ask the question, what is the gospel? What is the thing that Paul is talking about? What is the thing that Paul believes is uniting the community together? Gospel means in Greek, good news, euangelion. But what is it good news about? Now, throughout Galatians, Paul will expound on this idea. But in verse 4, he provides a very simple and yet deeply beautiful sentence that sort of invites us into the conversation. And we'll read it in just a second, but I've been thinking about this dynamic all week. The, the sentence that he offers us is both very simple, and yet it is really beautiful. And I think that's the dynamic that is important for us to hold when we talk about what the gospel is, that on one hand, it is very simple. And yet it is deeply beautiful. And the image that keeps coming to mind uh, to reflect this is that of a dinner party. And probably the reason I think about a dinner party when I think about the gospel is because that's often how Jesus describes the gospel. But here's what I mean by that. You can invite someone to dinner— and that is a very simple thing to do. Come over to my house. Let's eat together. And that very simple phrase describes the beauty of a dinner party. Come, let's eat together. Let's have a meal together. And that phrase enough is enough to describe the whole thing. You don't need to add any more about the courses. You don't need to get into the details of the chef's labor or the ingredients or where it's sourced from or whether the chicken had a nice life beforehand. You don't need to do that. But it's there. You can just say, come to my house. I'm going to open a bottle of wine and we're going to have dinner together. And that would be beautiful and deep and healing enough. The gospel is simple like a dinner invitation. Yet like a dinner party, the gospel is also deeply beautiful because it is made up of lots of sides and courses and entrees and options. The gospel, Jesus describes it as a wedding feast. And the very best has been provided to make this wedding feast what it is. And so on the table, there's hors d'oeuvres, and there is starter cocktails, and then there's little palate cleansers in the middle, and then there's appetizers, and then there's side courses, and there's a main meal, and then there's desserts, and there's dessert cocktails, and there's coffee, and then there's port wines, and then there's conversations that go on for too long, and someone's story that you're like, why are you telling this? I'm just happy to be with you. It's fine. I'll listen. And there's all of the other experiences of a dinner party that come with it, that are sort of encapsulated in the phrase, come to my house for dinner, we're going to gather together around the table. 
The gospel is like that. It is as simple as a dinner party invitation, and yet it is as complicated as a dinner party can often be. Full of good food, good options, and a wide table. And I say this for two reasons. The first reason I say this is I think that sometimes when we talk about the gospel, we can become very narrowly focused on one course on the gospel table. So when I was younger, if you'd asked me what I believed the gospel was, I probably would have told you, I think it's going to heaven. When like, that's the gospel, dying, going to heaven to be with Jesus. Now, do I believe that life with God eternal is a part of the gospel? Totally. But man, that's like dessert. That's coming a long way later, and the table has a lot of food on it that we need to eat before we get there. And so to miss all of the other meals, to miss all of the other courses, is to miss really the broadest and biggest part of the experience. But I think sometimes we can be too narrowly focused on one piece and say that is all the gospel is when there's so much else on the table. We're like kids who only eat mac and cheese when they go out. Now, do I believe that mac and cheese will be on the gospel table? Yes, because I am a child. (laughs) But do I think that's the only thing that will be on the table? No. No, I also think there'll be like jollof rice and Peking duck and desserts beyond my wildest imagination. And it would be immature As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, that once I was a child, but when I grew up, I started eating like an adult. He didn't say eating, I'm adding that part, but you get the idea. It would be immature to focus on one part of this story or this meal too narrowly and miss the whole other meal. On the gospel table, there is a diverse array of courses, justification, reconciliation, spirit empowerment, the overthrow of evil, the ending of injustice, the kingdom of God. There's mac and cheese. But if someone says that that is the only thing there is on the gospel table, they are not offering you the whole gospel. They've missed it. This is the beauty of the gospel as we will explore in the next couple of weeks. The gospel is as simple as an invitation to a dinner party. Come and eat. But you better come hungry. Because it's a full table. And in Galatians 1 verse 4, Paul invites us to that dinner. It's not all of the courses, but I think you can smell some of the aromas that are on the different courses that will come. This is what Paul says in Galatians 1 verse 4. He says, The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins, so that he could deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. There's probably some things in there that feel a bit familiar. To break it, to help us understand this, we're going to break it down into three distinct parts. We're going to talk about what it means that Jesus Christ gave himself. We're going to talk about our sins, and then we're going to talk about this very strange phrase, present evil age. So the first thing we're going to talk about is what does it mean that Jesus gave himself for our sins? And I think to understand why Jesus gave himself, it probably helps to begin with our sin. And sin is a loaded term. If you've grown up in a Christian home, or maybe you haven't grown up in a Christian home, but you've heard that phrase used or heard that word described, it is a loaded term. So I thought it'd be helpful just to break it down, understand what sin 
is. The Greek word that is used for sin in this moment is hamartia. And in Greek, it means to miss the mark. And the idea comes from shooting an arrow at a target or throwing a dart at a target. Or I guess today it'd be more like throwing a hatchet at a target. I feel like it's the only kind of like throwing of anything that we do. And it is you've missed the mark. You've erred from the mark when you threw the thing. That's a helpful image. But it doesn't in and of itself give us that much to go off of. And in fact, could set us up for failure if we don't properly define what the mark is. What is the mark that we are missing in sin? What is the mark of life that we're supposed to be aiming towards in the first place? That's maybe the more important question here. To understand what sin is, we need to understand what the mark is. And I think Often, the way we define the mark in our modern churches, or maybe in our own hearts, is that we define the mark as moral behavior. That the mark of this moment, the mark of sin that we're not supposed to miss, the mark of human life, is moral behavior. Rule-following or law-keeping, which would mean that the purpose of human life is moral behavior. I think as a lot of us have feel about the mark. And it's important that we define the mark because how we define the mark will determine what God is doing to rescue us, what it means that God gave himself to us, what it means the purpose of human life is. And so if the purpose, if the mark is moral behavior, then God's going to rescue us into moral behavior and the purpose of human life is moral behavior. But the mark is definitively not moral behavior. And I don't think you could make that argument from any moment in the text. The mark, instead of the Christian life and of our own purpose, is not moral behavior. It is instead loving fellowship and belonging with God, self, others, and creation. The mark is loving fellowship and belonging with God, self, others, and creation. The Hebrew word that is often used to describe this throughout the Old Testament is the word shalom, which means a kind of peace that happens when things are rightly connected, when relationships are rightly operating, when love is rightly moving. Shalom is the kind of peace of human flourishing that happens in community when things are right. The mark of the Christian life, the mark of our own measure is love. It is when we are fully loved by God and in turn love. And then our life, our ethics, our actions, our moves, all of those things are a part of this conversation, but they flow from a state of being loved and loving, which is why Jesus has no problem summing up all of the law in what phrase? Love God, love others. All of the moral prohibitions, all of the actions, all of the deeds, all of the descriptions, they can all be summed into these motivations. Love God, love others. The purpose, the mark, is not that you have perfectly fulfilled the law. It is that you have loved and been loved in return. That is the mark. So therefore, sin is not missing the mark of moral behavior— It's not living imperfectly. It's not breaking the rules. It's not failing to perfectly align your life morally. No, no. Missing the mark is turning away from relationship. Theologian Scott McKnight has this great quote saying it this way. Sin is the hyper-relational distortion and corruption of our relationship with God 
and therefore with self, with others, and with the world. If the mark is loving relationship, sin is turning away, rejecting or distorting that loving relationship. It is not, it is not that deeds have no part in this story. They do. But it's not the point of the story. The point of the story, the mark that we are aiming towards is unity, belonging, loving relationship. This is important for a lot of reasons. One, it's important to understand what do we think the purpose of human life it is to be loved and to love with God, others, self, and creation, to exist in shalom. So it's important to understand what we think the purpose is, the mark is. But it's also important because when we think of sin as moral behavior or missing moral behavior, we reduce what the Bible sees sin as. We make it something so much less than the Bible sees it. Theologian Brad Jersick has this really helpful quote and explains it this way. He says, The New Testament treats sin as a problem profoundly worse than lawbreaking. It is a malady with much deeper roots than misdeeds, though these are its ugly symptoms. Sin is a fatal disease that cannot be healed by striving to overcome it or attempting to punish it out of our own nature. You can't repress this. You can't punish it out. These are important things to understand what we think the solution to this problem is going to be. I love this part. He says, that would be like a parent whose baby is dying of meningitis, urging the child to will its fever away, or even trying to spank the virus out of her. Sin is deeper than misdeeds. It's deeper than uh, immoral behavior. Those are like the symptoms or the unhealthy coping mechanisms that will often emerge in our life because of something that is much deeper, misaligned love, disunion, distorted relationship. Is it important to address unhealthy coping behaviors? Yes, totally. They hurt, they cause isolation, they alienate, they're damaging, but they are not the cause, they are the symptom. The cause is disordered relationship, disunion, exclusion. Behavioral modification does not treat that. It's why the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel say, the thing you need is a new heart. Not a new list of rules to follow, not a more perfect will or more self-disciplined behavior. No, no, you need a new heart, a new set of connections, a new sort of love. And it is why Paul, we will see, is so frustrated with the Galatians throughout this letter because they keep adding the law to their gospel story, trying to address the disease by getting at these symptoms. And Paul is like, man, you, this is not enough really is the issue. Something deeper has to happen. Some deeper thing needs to be healed. So sin is disunion with God's self, others, in the world. In that quote from McKnight, he uses the phrase hyper-relational because what he's trying to describe is the way in which sin cuts across all the different dimensions of human sociocultural life. It's personal, it's individual, it's communal, it's familial but it can play out in even larger scales in that, into the systems and societies that we build. It's hyper-relational. McKnight adds on to his quote saying this, humans, when they coagulate into clusters, create conduits for corruption. Do you think he thought about how many C's he was using in this moment? It's like, this is clever. 
conduits for corruption to work, and they do so by creating systems that break down equity and love in various relationships. So whenever love, equity, union is broken apart, degraded, and distorted, we see sin. Individually, personally, communally, familially, socially. Sin is the distortion of belonging, union, fellowship, connection with God's self, others, and the world. And the Bible talks about sin like it is this disease, an issue of the heart. And I think, again, that is helpful because it speaks to how serious the Bible understands sin to be. It's a disease. Jesus doesn't just fix through moral behavior. Something else is required. And it's also helpful because it frames what we think the solution to this problem is. When the Galatians try to solve the problem through adding law, Paul is like, it's like you're trying to fix the heart by just like getting a teacher. And if the issue is moral behavior, if you didn't know enough, a teacher or a tutor would be enough. They could teach you the way out of this, but we need something different. We don't need a custodian or a guardian or a teacher. No, we need something more. If this is a disease, we need a physician. If this is a disordered relationship, an unreconciled relationship, then we need someone who pursues us. If it's a sickness, we need a healer. That's why Jesus told us that he came to be the great physician. Or why in Greek the word savior quite literally translates to healer. The solution to this problem is different than we often imagine it to be. So that leads to the second question. That is, what is sin? It is a distortion of relationship with God, self, others, and creation. So now the question becomes, well, how does Jesus heal? And Paul says, Jesus gave himself for our sins. Now again, that's a simple, it is a familiar phrase to many of us. But it is the heart of all of this. What it means that Jesus gives will define what we think the gospel is, what we believe God is doing in the world, and how we believe God even sees us. And I'm going to illustrate this uh, with my props. Oh yeah, they're making it, they're coming out! I'm going to put this chair here. I'm going to put this chair here. like it. Put these right here. So I, 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 le- I didn't come up with this. I learned this the other day from another pastor named Brian Zond. And it's called The Gospel in Chairs. And I felt like this was such a helpful illustration to understand what it means that God gave themselves to us. So this chair, because it's heavy, will represent humans. <laughs> this chair is going to represent God. Okay? Are you with me? Great. I love your uh, verbal consent. I think we often believe that when we sin, when we turn away from God, God's response to us is to do likewise. Maybe we don't believe that. Maybe that's not what we've been taught, but it is often how we feel, that sin separates us from God in ways that are um, inescapable. And God responds to our action in like manner by turning away from us, creating this gap that exists between us. But that is not the story of the Bible, and it is not the good news of the gospel. Instead, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus gives himself. And so when humans turn away, the story is always 
that God gives themselves to be with us. That as Adam and Eve remove themselves from the garden in right relationship with God, God does not turn their back on Adam and Eve and reject them and abandon them. Instead, God comes to meet them in the garden. God clothes them anew, and God promises to save the entire world through that relationship. When Cain kills Abel in scarcity and in the lies and distortion of his own fear, God does not abandon him. God meets him in the moment, and says, I will always be with you and I will mark you in such a way that no one can violate you or harm you. Nothing can separate you from relationship with me. When humans in the Tower of Babel story build an infrastructure and a system of exploitation, God comes to them. He meets them in that moment and calls to himself Abraham and says, through you, I'm going to build a whole family defined by right relationship with me, when Israel, that nation that God calls into relationship with Himself, when they abandon and reject and violate relationship with God, when they worship idols, when they reinstitute slavery, when they conquer other nations, when they decide to look like Egypt or the nations around them, God does not abandon them. God always gives themselves to Israel to meet them again and to call them back into relationship. And even in this moment from Galatians, Paul tells his own story. And when the Apostle Paul, so consumed by a commitment to moral perfection, begins to persecute the early Christian church, to murder, to kill, to enslave, God gives themselves to Paul. meets him on the road to Damascus, calls him by name, and invites him into relationship with himself. Everywhere that humans turn their backs on God, everywhere that they abandon right relationship with God, everywhere that they buy a lie and leave home, every time they wander far from the voice that calls them beloved, God gives God absorbs the trauma, the grief, the hostility, the wasted inheritance, the sin, the judgment, the fear in order to be with. God gives. Like the father in the story of the prodigal son, he always absorbs whatever was lost in order to make right relationship again. God gives themselves over and over and over. There's this beautiful quote by Henry Nouwen. He's actually writing about the prodigal son, and he says this about himself. The farther I run away from the place where God dwells, the less I am able to hear the voice that calls me beloved. And the less I hear that voice, the more entangled I become in the manipulations and power games of the world. If sin is a disease of distorted relationship, it is a place in which we lose ourselves in lies, in fighting for survival, in coping just to exist. God doesn't give us a new set of instructions, a new set of laws. He doesn't turn his back. Instead, God gives themselves to us to chase us wherever it is that we go far from home in order to say once again, you are still beloved. God gives themselves over and over and over again. That is the heart of the gospel. 
And if anybody tells you that it's something less or something different, Paul would say that is a different gospel. It is that God gives and gives and never stops giving. That nothing can separate you from the love of God, not height, not depth, not angels, not demons, nor things to come, Paul would say. No, no, God gives. To heal, to reconcile, and to restore this home. That's the dinner invitation. Now there's a lot of courses to that meal in terms of what it means that God gives himself. But it is never less than that Jesus gives. So sin is a distortion of right relationship, a corruption of our connection to God, self, others, and creation. And how does Jesus deal with it? Well, he gives himself to us to right relationship, to restore it. That leads to the final phrase that I want to look at. Paul says, to rescue us from the present evil age. Just like if you hadn't heard a religious phrase this morning, and here it is. What is present evil age? You might hear this and think that it means going to heaven, being rescued from this earth, this life, maybe being rescued from death and taken away. Now that might be a part of it, being rescued from death. But it is not the whole thing that is being spoken of in this moment. When Paul is talking about present evil age, Paul is talking about present world order of sin and evil. For Paul, this is the world that is built in isolation from God, the one that we established as we walked away. We build systems and stories and narratives and lies and idols that make false promises and communities that exclude. And those things wreak havoc on our lives east of Eden. And Paul says, God's going to rescue us from this thing. Paul uses similar language. I think this is just helpful in clarifying. In Colossians 1, verse 13, Paul writes this. He says, For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Something dominion, order, world of power is being undone. And the tense of this statement is important to pay attention to because Paul is not saying that you will be rescued from the present evil age. He's saying that you have been rescued from the present evil age. Not something that will come. It is something that has already happened. The past was the dominion of evil, the present evil age. You have already been rescued so that you can live into God's new age here and now, the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. Bible scholar N.T. Wright describes it this way. Jesus' followers are summoned to recognize that they now live in that different world, now, and are to order their lives accordingly to this new world. Jesus' rescuing death is in order that believers should be the people of God's new age rescued from the present evil age, here and now. God's work has already begun. The table is already laid. The meal is already underway. We have here and now been rescued. We have here and now been freed to live into a gospel life in this moment. 
Jesus describes this as the kingdom is at hand. It is in your midst. It has already arrived. So to be rescued from the present evil age is to be freed to participate in God's new work right here and right now. To come to the table and to invite others to it as well. Missio, this is the gospel dinner invitation. Jesus gives himself for our sins to reconcile us to himself, to others, and to creation, to set up his kingdom here and now so that we, empowered by the Spirit, can participate in that work immediately, in this moment. In the weeks to come, we will dive into the diverse courses that are offered in this meal, but it can never be less than this, that Jesus has given himself again and again to free us from sin, to pull us out of the lies, narratives, stories, exclusion, and so that we can participate in a new kingdom here. That is the dinner invitation that Paul is making to the Galatians. It's the one that's being made to us today. And it's the one that we practice every single week as we gather at this table. Every week we practice responding and participating in the gospel meal because on the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, he said, here's this table. Do this in remembrance of the gift that I am giving to you, of the new covenant that I am establishing, of the kingdom that I am building, of the community that I am forming. And that's what we do as we gather at this table. We gather so we can remember that Jesus gave himself so that we can come and eat. And so, Missio, today as we conclude, would you hear that dinner invitation? No matter how many times you've heard it, would you hear again that you have been invited to the table to feast, to belong, and to participate? As you hold that question, as we continue to worship, would you then bring it to this table as a moment to taste and see, oh yeah, I really have been invited. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the good news of you. Jesus, that you give of yourself to us, to free us from our sin, to deliver us from the present evil age, and to establish a whole new world order that we can live into now. As we hear that story proclaimed to us today, and then just continuing forward, I don't know, would it just hit us in new, fresh, helpful ways? This is a good news announcement. Would it sound like good news to us? Would it refresh our hearts? Would it challenge our idols? Would it speak something over us that calls us into more of life and more of you? God, would it draw us into you and send us out of people of the gospel story? God, help it to sink in. In your name we pray. Amen.